And we are live on Facebook with Isaac Hess, 5'11", 175-pound left-handed pitcher. He was signed out of Indy Ball by the Padres and the Red Sox. He played 11, uh, excuse me, seven seasons professionally, and he is the founder of Cage List. But we're going to talk some baseball here, and I want to know about your baseball journey. But before we get into that and you tell us about all that and your experience, what is Cage List? Cage List is our newly launched platform that is, uh, that is uh, also, thanks for having me, by the way. Um, this is awesome. Thanks for being on here. I appreciage yeah, it. for sure. Cagelist uh, is a is a long work in progress. We just launched it, and uh, just at the beginning of April, it's like the Airbnb of backyard batting cages. So sweet. As yeah, as a as a coach, as a private coach who does lessons, um, you know, full time now, I've always had a little bit of a challenge finding you know reliable spaces to be able to train my players and. Here, especially out, out in L.A., there's not very many uh, indoor facilities that are an option. Um, one, traffic's terrible, and they're pretty, they're pretty expensive. You know, you're looking at probably at least like 40 bucks, 50 bucks an hour, and sometimes even more, depending on what you're doing. So um, you're usually left with like a, you know, a park, which sometimes you're not even supposed to do lessons at parks, but... That's usually what I do. So I've always wanted to have a place that I could rely on, like a batting cage to be able to take my players. And, um, you know, I know dads want the same thing for their players and then teams that need other places to practice. So when so many people in the United States have a backyard batting cage sitting empty for so, so many of the hours of the day, it only makes sense for the baseball and softball community to be able to allow a platform to have those, you know, families not only have an opportunity to make some money off of it, but also to provide a space that is another option for the local players in their neighborhood or, you know, so now when we, when we get the app rolling, um, which hopefully should be launched in a few months as well, um, right now it's just a website, but when we get that rolling, um, it should be just like Airbnb where if you, you know, you roll into town, you need a spot, you can look it up and then look and see what batting cages are in your neighborhood and then, you know, just seamlessly rent it online and then go and use it and you're good. That's so cool, man. You know what's funny is I used to drive, when I was training guys, I used to drive over an hour to get to a facility. I live in uh, just outside of Orlando, south of Orlando, and um, the facility I worked at was over an hour away. But on my way, there was this house with a cage in the backyard. I'd never seen anybody in the cage ever. And I always saw every single day I drove by and it was like 10 minutes from my house as opposed to an hour. I was like, man, I wish I could just go there instead of driving all the way down here, you know? And that's funny that, you know, now you have the cage list. That would be a perfect, perfect fit right there. Right. And I mean, you're, you're, you the majority of people that have batting cages are the people that are, you know, full on travel ball, you know, like super dedicated, you know, or maybe the dad's just extra and he bought a batting cage when the kid was like six, you never know. But um, <laughs> either way, they're, they're destined to be baseball people. So, you know, you're going to interact with, with some, some quality people that are going to be like-minded and probably grow your own network as well as you use other batting cages. You never know what's going to happen from stuff like that. And, I think people now will really prioritize, you know, not going cheap on their batting cage. If they're going to get the nice turf, they're going to get the nice iron mic pitching machine. You know, if they know that it's going to be an investment that they can put on the cage list, 
then they're going to make a nice quality upfront investment in, in a quality space so that they can use it and then it can pay for itself over time. So speaking of price, how much does it cost to sign up and how, how does someone sign up? Super easy to sign up. It's free. Um, you know, it's still free. It might not always be free right now. So we or it's free right now, but it might not always be free. So we encourage you to go and enlist your cage now. Um, we plan on having it always be free for users. Don't, don't, you know, mark my words on that, but, um, currently it's free for users and it's free for cage owners. Um, we're trying to build up the inventory of batting cages right now so that, you know, there's more and more over the United States. Um, so if you know somebody or if you own a cage, then we, we encourage you to go on the site, just cagelist.com. Um, there's a little button in the top right corner. It says list your cage. Um, takes about five minutes to go through and you list out what you have included. You know, if you include baseballs, if you include pitching machine and, and, uh, or pitching mound and stuff as well. And then, uh, you just try to soup up your listing with good pictures as well. And then once we get a good user base on there, then it'll look appealing and it'll pop up when somebody's in your, in your area. Now, is this just for people with backyard batting cages or can facilities sign up who have batting cages in there and rent them out? How does that work? Indoor facilities can also uh, use our platform and we haven't really determined the exact path on what we're going to take with those, but we encourage indoor facilities to use our platform as well. Um, you know, you book through, you book through our site. So we take a, a small commission. We take a 15% commission on each booking since we, you know, we've created this platform and, and created a connection for all of this. So, um, I don't know if that's going to be appealing to indoor facilities, but clearly as we grow, they're going to want to have exposure to be the indoor facility option as well, because there's going to be plenty of people that still want to go to the, the nicest facility possible and they might drive a little extra, they might pay a little more, but um, the whole goal is to just be able to make it even more accessible for baseball and softball um, youth to train and even college and pro guys, you know, if you're, if you're like a 19, 20 year old and you just got drafted or if you're in college and it's summer and you just don't got anybody to hit with, but now you look on cage list and all of a sudden there's an iron mic pitching machine and it's like 20 bucks an hour to go rent the cage. Maybe you're just going to go pay 20 bucks, get your work in and get, get a ton of hacks and then you got no excuses, you know? So, um, we're, we're excited. We, we really think that it's going to change the, change the development of the game and just, create more accessibility for everybody. And like I said, like for, for those middle-class Americans that, you know, it's kind of a stretch for them to invest in that batting cage, but the dad just felt so good when he got in the car and the 10 year old just hit those two doubles, you know, and now the, the dad is just excited about the path of baseball for his son. So he wants to make it work, but it's $5,000 to make a nice cage. He can talk to his wife and he can say, Hey, you know, let's, Let's invest in this. It's good for little Johnny, and it'll be good for our family, a little side income, and it'll be good for the local people in our area to be able to come and, and use it. And we don't have to, like, interact with those people. You just have to set it up in a way where they can go through the side yard, read the rules, make sure that they take care of the space. And, you know, our whole platform is going to be built on trust, like, like Airbnb. So you're going to leave a review for the people. You want to make sure that you keep your – your profile and good, uh, good standing and stuff. You're not going to go in and, you know, beat the place up and not take care of it. So we're excited. Yeah, it's really cool. And, you know, it, at first thought or first glance, you, you know, I, I 
assume for most people, especially the owners of the batting cage would be nervous because it's like, you're having new people come to your house and stuff like that. But just like you said, I'm a huge fan of Airbnb and mm -hmm. my wife and I, whenever we go anywhere, we usually use one of those sites to book a place because they usually have super cool places to stay. And they're usually a lot more affordable than the hotels too. So we've just fell in love with them and it's always worked out super smooth. Like the people that do it are always really cool. There's never been any issues. And you know, all the, the point I'm trying to make is I, even though it may seem scary, it's probably all going to be just fine and everything is going to be super smooth because the people looking to rent your place are not going to do anything to mess it up because they want to come back there. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, and plus it's, I mean, the owner of the cage has an opportunity to look at the profile of the person, you know, make sure that they look like a normal person, just like Airbnb doesn't have to, you, you can set it to automatically approve, or you can set it to make it so that you have to see who it is, kind of, you know, take a glance at their profile, their reviews and stuff. So if they have a bunch of negative reviews, then maybe you're just going to pass on them. But if they look fine, then you're going to say, okay. And then, you know, the, the cool thing about it is that you could be sitting there eating dinner with your family from 5 to 7 p.m. And if you're charging 30 bucks an hour for your cage, you could you could just see that in the backyard people are coming through and using it. But all of a sudden you just got basically 60 bucks. But I mean, minus the, the fees, um, you know, but put into your account just because you have that backyard space. And that's just an ongoing thing. You're probably going to start having your regulars and you know that once you get it up and running and you, you keep improving it, then over time it's going to be a nice, hearty little extra piece of income that's going to be coming in for your family. That That's really cool. When you said that, I was imagining myself eating dinner and having a cage in the backyard with some kids out there swinging like some older – in my head I was imagining like high school age uh, kids swinging. And I have a three-year-old son right now, and I just think that would be super cool for him to see and, you know, have that in his backyard and have the experience. Cause I think environment is huge for kids coming up. And if you have that environment right there at your house and your own children can get in there and do what they need to do whenever they want, you know, that's, I mean, shoot, you, <laughs> I'm ready to buy a cage. You sell the cages too. <laughs> that, that actually, that's a good question. I mean, that'll be a goal, you know, over time, I, I, I hope for us to be, a good partner with batting cage manufacturers because like I said with all the people that are on the fence due to price you know a lot you know like out here in LA that's it's hard not there's not a lot of big backyards so it's not like there's a ton at least in the LA area northern California is probably a little more accessible to have a big backyard but in Phoenix like where I'm from everybody has a massive backyard like it comes like it's normal to have a big backyard where you could build a batting cage so um, but yeah, like if you are growing up and you're the, you're a dad who you're like, come on, let's go practice. Let's go practice. And the son's like, no, I want to play. I want to play Fortnite or whatever. Like you can, you know, just naturally, I think if people are starting to use it, that'll be another advantage because the kids are going to be like, Oh, I want to go see that guy hit, you know? And you can just sort of hang back and watch if you want, or you can just be totally hands off and just have the money inserted into your account so yeah that's cool I remember the first time I went I was a young player in Little League and I remember going to my first high school game like watching it like watching the big boys play and I was just amazed at like how fast it was and like how big and strong they were and the things they were doing and it just caught my attention so much and and 
you know, just when you were saying that, I thought about having that in the backyard, like, and, and, and having my son be able to witness that at an early age, you know, to give him that, that feeling and that passion that I got when I first saw those high school players do it. And that's really cool. The other thing I thought about too was from the facility um, standpoint, or even the, even anyone who's renting the cage is the SEO aspect. I've been doing YouTube for many years and I've got a website. In fact, when I had the facility, I was, I would get called any day. There was a rainy day. I would get hundreds of phone calls because my website showed up number one for batting cage rentals. And that was because I was good at search engine optimization and having a big site like cage list, you're going to have a lot more juice than these facilities that have their, just a website of their own. And they put it up there a lot. I'm assuming, I don't know, but as you grow, I'm assuming that the more people that start to post their cages on cage list, they're going to start to come up higher in the search uh, rankings because you're going to have such a big site versus Joe Joe's hitting facility. He has a web page and he posts that, you know, on Google, Hey, here's my facility. Come rent it. He's not going to rank as near as high as a cage list is who has, that's what they do. And they have, you have tons and tons of pages and facilities. So that could be a huge asset to anyone trying to rent a cage for sure. Definitely. And that's the, I mean, that's the goal. Like in, you know, I always considered as a full-time coach, like what would be the next steps to open a facility? And for me, it's just like with what I've been doing with private lessons, like it's just like, do I want to step into that other realm or do I just want to keep it a little bit more hands off and do what I'm doing? And I've never wanted to like jump into owning a facility. So that's why, and, and with Corona too, and kind of like, the uncertainty of how things are going to be moving forward in our world. Um, I think having a outdoor facility where it's hands off, you, you don't have to be out there touching the poles, touching, you know, all the stuff. The balls is the main thing. I think that there might be a concern with there. Um, but like, it's still social distancing. So it's going to be like a way to like have people in and out without crossing paths, without being in a, a big group of people, you know, so a dad, if, if he wants to go train with his son and he wants to either have a pitching machine or just be able to throw to him over the L screen. Now he's going to have this option out in, you know, open space, open air and not have to worry about being like shoulder to shoulder next to other people in a facility. So well, and, I I was just going to say with, with also with Corona, you know, people not having so much income right now or just uncertainty there. If you have that asset in your backyard already, it's for me, it's a no brainer. You know, I think for the majority of baseball guys, softball people, like it's, it's a no brainer. Um, and the only, the biggest question so far has been insurance. And I'm currently working with some of my old teammates, uh, opponents, actually, he was a left-handed pitcher. That's an insurance agent now. And he's trying to work on, uh, just the overall best solution for the cage owners and for the users as well. So, yeah, another thing that comes to mind when you talked about the coronavirus too is I can't tell you how many facility owners have hit me up saying they're shut down and now they're trying to do the the online stuff, but they have a huge overheads and they can't get in there. You know, uh, one guy I was talking to had uh, two facilities, thirty five thousand dollars each in overhead a month. You know, so it's crazy to, you know, have something like that. I always, I always heard this uh, expression. I forget who said it, but you could either have a, a huge ship, you know, that turns very slowly and is very big and massive, 
or you can have a small boat and be able to move quickly through the waters, you know, and that's kind of like the backyard batting cage through this time, you know, that it's, you don't have nearly as much overhead. You wouldn't be as effective, affected as much, uh, if anything. And maybe now I'm sure there's going to be a lot of facilities closing across the country who couldn't maintain this month or two months that they had to shut down. Um, so maybe this is an opportunity for them to, to downsize their ship, so to say, and, and, you know, get into something a little bit smaller where there's uh, less overhead and, or for, for a guy who's just starting up, you know, that might be the route to start up because, you know, it's tough to, to have a full facility and, and especially in, in an area where it's, you know, a business area mm-hmm. and, and pay, you know, I'm, I can imagine it's got to be close to, even if you had like a small one cage warehouse thing, you got, you got to be looking at probably three grand a month at, at minimum just to get, to get rolling versus, uh, you know, and that's a month. If you have something in the backyard, you might have that three grand the one time and you own the land, you know? Exactly. Exactly. So, and if, I mean, assuming that that's your family home and you're not going anywhere, like you could be, depending on how good your cage is, I think, I think probably 60 is like what I've maxed it out. If you have like just two baller mounds that are like clay and, you know, like a nice big cage and iron mic machine, the L screen, you just have the whole works and turf and everything. I think probably like 60 bucks would probably be what I would cap it at. Like maybe 50 even, but you know, then you have that. If, if you're the best one on the block and you're having that three to four hours a day, um, what is that, you know, up to 200 bucks possibly per day, just going into your account with, you know, 200 times five, that's a thousand up to four, 4,000 a month. I mean, I believe that's like an ideal scenario, but I think that's a reasonable scenario. If you have a really nice cage that you've invested in, that's 4,000 a month. You're looking at an additional, you know, almost $50,000 a year. So it's appealing. It definitely is. You know, I got a buddy um, I went to school with. He's been on my YouTube channel a couple times, Chris Marlowe of Light Tower Baseball. And over the last, I want to say, I want to say it's only been probably two years, but he started off with a net in the backyard. Then it became a wall. Um, Then he turfed out a little area and now he's got it covered and he's got two cages. He's got all kinds of training stuff in there. It's one of the coolest freaking places I've ever seen. And it's right in his backyard. And I'm like, man, I, I want, you know, I want something like that. Unfortunately, I have no land at all in my, I'm in a, you know, homeowners uh, community, but uh, my whole goal is to move to a place where I could build something like he has there. Um, Me personally, for more, personal reasons and shooting videos and stuff like that but right. and for my son but i mean if i can make a couple extra extra bucks on the on the side why not you know it's just a no brainer right. and i think that's how airbnb has disrupted the market too you know like people are thinking to themselves should we should we buy this space uh you know as an investment for our retirement or whatever you know like okay i don't know i'm weighing it out well let's just put it on airbnb because Airbnb, if you put it on there and it's a decent place, it will get rented. That's, you know, they've completely disrupted the entire industry. So, um, you know, for everybody in baseball, I haven't had one person say like, that's a bad idea. That's not going to work. You know, like everybody that understands baseball that wants, you know, and a guy like your buddy, he's built it out because he's probably a coach, I assume. And he probably wanted it for his own personal reasons as well to train himself. 
But now the dads in the neighborhood that are like, no, I can teach my son by myself. I don't need to hire a private coach, which I totally advocate. And I think that's great, especially if they know what they're doing. Then, you know, now they have that opportunity to not use you as a coach, but use your facility. And then maybe over time, if you're out there, then maybe you'll get a lesson from it also. So that's yeah. another aspect of the platform for private coaches who have those backyard facilities. Um, we just, I mean, I'm not, we haven't really integrated a, a, a intricate feature for that. It's just like, do you offer private lessons? Yes or no. That's a soft, you know, like warm connection right there that you can potentially get for a new guy that, you know, I wanted to use your cage. Oh, can I pay you 50 bucks for a lesson? Also, bam, you got a new client. So, right. Yeah. That's so cool. It's funny you say that because he didn't, he wasn't a coach. I mean, he helped coach his sons. He had, he has sons and he just wanted to build something for them at first, but now I see him in there. He's training all kinds of guys and you know, he had a full-time job. He still does, but I'm pretty sure he could quit that job if he wanted to now because of what he built and what he's doing now. So it's really, really cool what, what he has done over there. And, and now just having this platform that, that something like you're providing is I, I assume a no brainer to someone like that. Yeah, for sure. I'm excited about it, man. I'm hoping I'm hoping it can help a lot of those families that, you know, struggle. It can be 500 plus per month for a serious travel ball kid, you know, like that's expensive. So yeah. I hope that this is an opportunity to fund some of that in addition to, like I said, helping just the local community of players, just creating more access. So That's so cool. Now, can we talk a little bit about your – uh, experience in baseball and, and where you, uh, you know, where you started playing, where you went to, uh, where you ended up finished playing and, and then how you got into uh cage list. Definitely. Um, so I'm a left-handed pitcher. I was a left-handed starting pitcher, um, played indie ball for seven years, got to play in Mexico for a year, played in Australia, played in, uh, Canada for a few years and then finished up in Czech Republic. So I got to go play in a little beer league in Czech Republic, which was really fun. Um, but started in Frontier League. Um, some of your listeners probably understand indie ball. Um, you know what the Frontier League is, I'm sure. Yeah. Did you play indie ball at all? No, I didn't. You stopped after affiliated? Yeah, I got a bunch of uh, calls right when I got released from affiliated ball. But I was just so over it. And I was like, nah, I'm, I'm done. So. You're smart, though, man. You got on the, on the content immediately. You had the... You had the awareness right away. That was good. Yeah, you know what it was? Well, uh, the You remember the the um, BlackBerry phones? Yeah. Where you could like scroll down the side and, and you can get your email. And I was just like, whoa, you can get your email on a phone? You know, <laughs> I was just mind blown. And I was still playing at the time. And I was like, let me just shoot some, because YouTube was new at the time too. And I was like, let me just shoot some videos and throw them up there about what I'm doing in pro ball. And then luckily it stuck around. So I had something to fall back on when I got done. So. Yeah. You know, what's funny is I, I noticed that baseball players, when they get out of baseball, a lot of them go into business and start things like you're starting cage list. I started uh, my online YouTube business and uh, a lot of guys get into business. My theory is that we're really good at failing. <laughs> because uh because of baseball so we get into business and we're just like whatever all these obstacles that come at us we just keep we just keep going we may not be the smartest people in business but we just we just keep grinding it out and figure it out until it works so that's my theory anyway that's well said for sure i agree <laughs> 
Yeah, man. So um, <clears throat> I played first two years in Windy City. It was awesome. It was like a like a fairy tale. We ended up winning the championship both years because that was that was actually three years out of not playing. I played my freshman year of junior college at South Mountain Community College, and then I went on a full ride up to Washington State University. First day I was there, they told me I wasn't going to get clear to play because my hip was all jacked up. I had a really arthritic hip because I had something called <clears throat> leg calf perthes disease when I was seven. So I had a limp and like, I, I didn't realize how bad my hip was by the time I got to Washington State. But I mean, I was eating like 12 ibuprofen a day and like had limited mobility, but I was still able to get out on the mound and throw six innings and just kind of grind through it, you know? So I was a lefty, which definitely helped. And I was throwing 90 with a good curveball. So was it your was, right hip or your left hip? It was my drive, my left hip. So I was all, if it was my right hip, I probably wouldn't have been able to, to laugh. But since it was my drive hip and I could kind of control the, the, the torque on it a little bit more, um, <clears throat> it, was, it was fine. It's still fine to this day. On, in July, it'll be 15 years since I've had the hip replacement. And, wow. you know, it's, it's not normal for – I'm 34. It's not normal for a 19-year-old to have a hip replacement. It's very rare. But I got it done because I was a candidate based on the, the condition of my hip at the time. And the doctor was like, you know, I don't recommend you playing. Well, the doctor in Washington State was like, I'm not going to clear you to play. You should try to wait until you're 30 to get it done. I was like, that's not on my agenda, so I'm going to go get a second opinion here. Nevertheless, they didn't let me play that year, and then I transferred to U of A. I had the surgery that summer after my sophomore year. I rehabbed my junior year. I was ready to go again, throwing 88 to 90 my senior year, like work my butt off, eyes on the prize every day. Got a shot, didn't get cleared to play by U of A, even though the coach was like, you can come out for fall. Like he, he showed me that he respected me a ton and, and like gave me a shot. He's like, you just have to get cleared to play. The doctor there wouldn't clear me to play because I had a hip replacement. And there was, it was kind of unprecedented, you know. Bo Jackson is the only other guy in professional sports to ever have a total hip replacement. Wow. Um, so I just found out Colby Lewis, the guy, the, the pitcher for the – Rangers, uh, I think he just ended his career like three years ago. He had a hip resurfacing, which is similar, but it's not quite, I mean, a hip replacement. Like they like go in, they saw off the femoral head that goes into your pelvis. They like literally saw it off and then they jam a big rod down your femur. And then there's something sticking out of that. And then they put a ball on top of that, that little nub. And then that goes into a cup. So Wow. Super, super common surgery. It sounds crazy, but like, it's a very, very common surgery. It's just normally done on older people, you know, like right. 60, 65 and up. So it's, it's not normal that anybody comes back to play sports, let alone professional sports from it. So pitched seven years with it, but I didn't, I didn't play for three full years in college. I didn't play my sophomore year at Washington state. Um, then I, I got the surgery. Didn't I rehabbed my junior year didn't play my senior year either thought I was done went to a tryout for the White Sox in Tucson and threw like the best bullpen of my life thought I thought I was done up until two days before that a scout mentor of mine told me like just go throw this tryout see what happens and I did I ended up getting uh, a scout there by the name of JJ Lally hope he's listening out there but he's probably not but uh, JJ was just a legend he ended up getting me a chance to go to a spring training in Windy City um, I drove out two weeks late for the, for the spring training, not knowing that I wasn't like 
like totally on the team. I thought uh, since I signed a contract, it was just like sign, sealed, delivered. I'll be there when I can make it. Um, I, I was just a, a fresh, young ignoramus at the time and, <laughs> and uh, showed up, but threw, threw really well for the two times I got to throw, thankfully. And Andy Haynes, who was our manager that year, he was a rookie manager. I think that had a lot to do with the fact that he kept me around. Like he, he was pretty fresh also. He's only 30 years old and managing our team. He's now the big league hitting coach for the Milwaukee Brewers, Andy Haynes. So he gave me a shot. First half, I ended up going 8-0 out of the bullpen, which nice. was crazy. Made the all-star team, um, pitched the second inning. This is all after not pitching for three years and having a total hip replacement. So made the all-star team, pitched the second inning in the all-star game. That was like a little fairy tale too. Um, we went on to win the championship. I got MVP of the championship that year. Nice. I was a baseball player again. It was pretty awesome. And then um, came back to Windy City the next year. Um, we started the season off rough. Our manager got fired halfway through. We ended up just going on a tear. We won 20 out of 22 games at one point on the second half. Wow. We ended up winning the championship the second year also. Um, so I got picked up. You, you had said I got picked up by the – first I got picked up by the White Sox. J.J. was a scout for the White Sox. <clears throat> he tried to give me a chance. They told me that I couldn't get cleared to play because of my hip. Uh, I was in this, like, like vortex of, like, why am I able to play an indie ball, but why am I not allowed to play an affiliated ball? So that was just the first time. The human resources department said that, like, I wasn't going to get a chance because I was too big of a risk. So I was like, whatever, okay, I'll keep going. So then pitched my butt off the next year. I was the number six prospect in Baseball America for independent ball players and thought I was just on my way. I ended up throwing a bullpen for the Padres. I got signed there that day. I actually signed a contract. They're like, we, we got you. We just want you to go take some x-rays and we'll confirm it a little later today. They called me five hours later. They said, hey, I'm sorry. I know you signed that contract, but it's void and null. Um, we're not going to clear you to play after all because of your hip replacement. Oh, man. What year was that with the Padres? That was 08, after 08. So, like, you uh, know, the, in 07, I think it was, they signed Dykstra. for. Uh, he was like a first rounder. And it might have actually been 08. It might have been uh, right before you signed. And he had hip problems. And he had hip problems his whole whole time and I think maybe that's when that's when the Padres started cracking down and trying to check on guys because I just saw on his Instagram he just got his hip replaced recently like now and he's got to be 30 he's got to be 30 I don't know maybe six or 35 years old now and he just got his hip replaced um, for playing but he was a yeah he was a big big draft guy from for the Padres right around that same time and I think they're probably like you know hold on we got to check these hips now when these guys come in Right. They had me like, like do shuffles and karaoke's and like, they're, they're all kind of looking at me like, like, what are you doing? Like right here, you're not supposed to be doing this. Like your hip's going to wear out in five to 10 years and then you're going to have to get a new hip. And that's the thing that they're like most worried about, you know, like the, the liability in the future. And I think being, being tagged for that liability, if I ever made it to the big leagues and then I had problems. I don't know if they thought they were going to have to pay me big league salary for the rest of my life or something like that. 
I told him that, I mean, I had a lawyer, I had everybody in my corner. I had, I was like, just tell me whatever pieces of paper you want me to sign. I swear to God, I'm not going to keep you, li- uh, have you liable for anything that happens to my hip. Like, just give me a chance, you know. By that time, I was throwing 93 also. Like, I was getting better every day. I was, I was throwing, I was a lefty throwing. I topped at 94. I, I ended up going to Mexico in um, 2010. But 2009, I, I went 9 and 0 before, or I was 8 and 0 before All Star break. I started the All Star game in the Golden League. I played for the team called the Victoria Seals. I was a pretty damn good league, too. So, um, there's just a lot of double AA, A, triple A guys in that league. And, I had a scout come in the dugout after I pitched the the first inning in the in the All Star game. He's like, "I'm Steve Peck with the with the Boston Red Sox, and we're going to sign you." And I was like, "This." I was like, before I said awesome and celebrated, I was like, because it had already happened twice. I was like, "You you know I have a hip replacement, right? I'm not hiding that. There's nothing hide. You know, you saw me pitch. I have a hip replacement." He's like, "We know everything. It's totally fine. We just want to fly you to Boston." Have you have you seen by our people, and uh, we're probably gonna send you to Double A here um, after you get done with Boston. I was like, this is a dream, awesome. So I go there, I sit there for two days, and they send me back because I had a hip replacement. Oh, they weren't gonna man. clear me to play. So then I ended up going to Mexico because um, <clears throat> I'm I was doing well. I was I got number six prospect again that year, and I, two years in a row I got the number six overall prospect. And both years I was the top left-handed prospect in the nation for Baseball America. So. Wow. left-handed pitching so I went to Mexico to try to make a little bit of money I had a my agent at the time um very well connected there in Mexico he got me there and then um I was going to try to play in Japan and uh because like I clearly wasn't getting an opportunity no matter how well I pitched to play affiliated ball in America so I wanted to go to Japan and then like sort of roundabout try to work my way into the big leagues if I could make it to the big leagues in Japan and prove it there um, and it was like I said, it was just this like vortex for some, the first day I was at Windy City, they had me sign one little notarized piece of paper that said, I won't keep you guys liable. I won't make you, I won't hold hold you liable for anything that happens to my hip. And I had to sign off on it. And you had to, I had to go with the GM and get it notarized at the local bank. I was like, why can't I just do this for affiliated ball? So um, in Mexico, they didn't have a problem either. And then, yeah, I played in Winnipeg after that. In 2011, I was opening day starter there. Uh, had a pretty good season. Then I went to the Bluefish, Bridgeport Bluefish in Atlantic League in um, 2012. And then from there, I was just like, uh, I don't know. Like, I was six seasons doing pretty well. I was like, I'm just going to go play in Czech Republic. I got an opportunity. Just went there for three months and had a blast. And then uh, played one more season in Arizona the next year. There's this little league called the Freedom Professional Baseball League. I think that was when I discovered you. That was like 2013 or 14. Like, who is this guy making all his content on YouTube? <laughs> and that's when I, I was in SEO, actually, in the beginning, too. That's like how I was kind of able to put together Cage List. And, you know, I always had a, a passion for, for uh, being the best. And on the Internet, like, there's so much to learn. So... You figure, okay, I can be the best on the internet. I can show up number one if I know how to do what I'm doing and I grind it out. So that's what I, I sort of like web development and like uh, just SEO in general and how the internet works. So that's all of that brought me to Cage List today. Um, you know, because I was doing made baseball is like my brand for for kids and just teaching kids. It's basically just me and a, a couple other coaches, but 
like we don't have a facility we just run off of a brand instead of saying you know instead of you being john madden baseball you're you go pro instead of me being isaac hess baseball I'm made baseball and got some hats and t-shirts but just doing lessons out here and need the coronavirus to go away so i can get back out of the park but in the meantime if cage list starts taking off then maybe i can use someone's backyard cage out here and be able to rent it out and and still do social distancing and stay out of like the park rangers eyes because right now we're not even supposed to be out there so oh yeah i over here in uh tampa i'm about an hour from tampa tom brady just got uh banged for playing catch in the park over there you know, they went to go they wanted to go tell him hey sir you can't be uh out here at the park playing catch and they rolled up <laughs> and it was it was tom brady so and then the lady goes the lady goes tom brady has been cited and everyone like the the internet took you know, oh my God, they gave him a ticket. They couldn't believe it, you know, and it went viral. They gave Tom Brady a ticket. And then she came out the next day and he, she was like, no, I meant sighted. Like we saw him. We didn't sight him. We just told him he had to get out of the field. So <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. But I think we're allowed now just on Monday in Florida. I think we're allowed now to get back out of, out to the field. I'm not a hundred percent sure about that, but I um, hope so. Yeah. I, hopefully, I hopefully you guys are not too far behind. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a baseball close by you by chance? Do I have a baseball? I do. Hold on one second. Where did I put my glove? I wanna I wanted to ask you what pitches you threw, uh, how you hold them, how you grip them, and what you're thinking about when you're throwing them. So <clears throat> my bread and butter was uh fastball, four seam fastball, just regular. I was very much bulldog when it came to trying to get you out. It wasn't fancy. It was just, here it is. See if you can hit it. That's what I teach my pitchers, you know, pound the zone, get ahead, be fearless. Um, what I'm thinking when I'm holding the fastball is just try to minimize friction on the ball. Just try to hold it with the minimum amount of pre like uh, pressure with my fingers here, have my wrist be as loose as possible and have as much space here as possible while still feeling like I'm in full control of the ball. So four-seamer there, I always liked it as a lefty with the, with the horseshoe inside. So if that went for a righty, that would be like that. Some guys like it like this. That never felt real comfortable for me. Um, so that was four-seamer. And then two-seamer, I didn't throw that often, but I just threw basic two-seamer here. I tinkered with here this sometimes, but that didn't really work for me either. Um, I tinkered a little bit with like moving my fingers around, but I was literally like 97% four seam fastball. Um, I would, I would throw a two seamer here and there, but usually it would just get hit. So what was your, uh, what was your arm angle on the four seam and what kind of movement did you get? I always got like running up and away. Everybody told me that it felt like I was throwing a rise ball. Um, so a lot of lefties get that natural, that natural run on the ball, right? I never tried to make it do that, but um, I would just release it and it would oftentimes go away from a righty. And until I started getting more command and getting on top of the ball, like if I kept my arm here at all, like I would be a little bit under it and it would rise, which sort of served me to be effectively wild. I would like shoot to hit down and in on a righty and miss up and away and get a swing and a miss. That happened a lot, but um, I was over the top for sure. I mean, I was here, chest leading, elbow leading, and definitely, uh, definitely no sidearm. Um, pretty much standard mechanics over the top. Try to keep it really simple. 
and then I threw curveball. I mean, I always tell I threw a changeup too, but like I really had a tough time with the changeup my whole life, and I didn't study it enough. I didn't have confidence in it enough. I think if I would have thrown a changeup consistently, especially in hitters counts, and had the confidence to do that, I think I would have been twice the pitcher I was. Um, that's what I teach all my guys now, you know, from a young age, as soon as they start pitching, I try to teach them to fall in love with the changeup and like really develop it. But I was always a curveball guy. I started throwing a curveball when I was 12 and I had a really good natural curveball that like I could control. I could throw it 2-0. I could throw it 3-2. Um, you know, so that was, that was good. I threw the curveball. There's a two seamer. I just climbed up the side. Pretty standard. Most guys either throw it like this. You can see my little weird nubby finger. I cut part of my finger off when I was seven years old. So <laughs> oh, man. I always think if I hadn't have done that, maybe I would have gotten a little bit of extra spin on the ball too. <laughs> but, uh, or maybe it helped too. So some guys throw it like this at the bottom of the horseshoe. I climb up and throw it at the top. And I never knuckled it like this. I don't know if you knuckled it, but like that never served me either. I think maybe because I had the nub finger. I always kept this finger here. And then I just tried to get that nice, clean top spin on the ball. Where's so. your uh, thumb placement at on that? So here, it's right here on this seam. Okay. And then what about on the four seam with the thumb? Right under. Okay, cool. So it's, it's based almost the same. It's just a little bit more to the side with the curveball, like just nestled inside that seam. So I would try to feel – myself I would try to feel the grab inside that seam it would kind of help me feel like I could get that turnover even more but for anybody out there that's you know pitching guys that's um listening I think the key is is to try not to do too much you know try not to make a curve just be able to spin it and especially from a young age don't like just let your arm work for you let your arm get out in front and let your arm be loose and free instead of trying to grit your teeth and think I got to make this thing nasty uh, most of the time if you just let it be free and easy then and just think about getting that spin then it's gonna be a lot more effective for you was it uh 12-6 or did it have some side run it was mostly 12-6 I started developing kind of multiple curveballs after my second third year so I mean I was a big walk guy like I had like 60 strikeouts and 40 walks in my first year but I was always able to grind through and I mean I would come in in the seventh or the eighth and um you know I would walk walk two guys and then strike out two and get a pop-up so that was pretty common what was your highest velocity on the fastball in Mexico in um 2010 I hit 94 a handful of times um but I was I was more like 88 to 92 most of my career so. and then what was some of the things that you did to develop your velocity, let's say from, you know, high school on into pro ball, like what were some of the big things that really helped you velocity wise? Well, in high school, I just had one main coach mentor that, you know, would just kind of watch my bullpens and give me confidence and give me a couple of tips on, on uh, my mechanics, but I never did any private lessons, you know, like it's such a different landscape out there with, with private lessons and stuff like that. So I wasn't real keen on mechanics except for some of the stuff my coach told me. Like I, did, I didn't study nearly as much as I should have been. There wasn't access the same way. So as it is now with Instagram and being able to watch all these like, like overlay videos and grips and everything, like these kids are so lucky now. So 
Um, what I did ultimately was um, after I got my hip replacement, especially my main priority was just to be healthy as much as possible and take good care of my hip and keep that strong, which uh, I think that really helped. I started doing yoga a lot. Yoga was like an integral part of my path. Um, and I think that helped my velocity. Uh, I did my, you know, my band work. I was big on long toss, but I wasn't like one of those guys that was like, okay, go over the fence 700 feet away. And I'm just going to try to throw it as absolutely far as I can. Um, you know, I was, I'm always teaching guys to listen to your body. If you if you go out one day and your program that's written down is to just throw, you know, a hundred throws at 120 feet or something, but your arm is feeling crisp after that, like stretch it out farther, just get whatever you can out of that day. And then if it, if, if it's, you're supposed to go farther and your arm is telling you to shut it down, um, you know, you got to listen to your body and try to have, like be real in tune with what your body is telling you and push it when you can and pull back when, when it tells you to pull back. That's, that's huge, man. And I don't think we hear that from pros enough because there's so many programs out there right now. And don't get me wrong. Programs are good. There's something there's, it's, there's beneficial to know the numbers and know the science and have a program, but it's also super important. I think. Uh, to do like you said and have feel whether it be feel of your arm when you're throwing and understand your arm and same in the gym too like if you're just dead dog tired and but you've got a heavy workload of legs and squats and crazy stuff in the gym maybe you take that day off or skip that day or push it back a day or two you know you got to be smart with it uh, as well and I think a lot of injuries these days because we see a ton of injuries these days and it's because one, I think, from overuse, and two, from just trying to uh, trying to do too much too soon, you know, I, I think at least. And I think the way you said it was perfect. Just have a feel and have a, a understanding of how your arm feels and your body feels because that's – besides the program is, is huge. That, I like the way you said that. That was really cool. Right. And, I mean, I think that, uh, that lends to the idea of pitching too, you know, like just – throw what works that day like you don't have to be married to whatever whatever is your best stuff like fall back on your strength if it's a situation where it's three two full count bases loaded you're up by one and you know the best hitter's up and you gotta throw a strike you're probably gonna want to do what has gotten you there but if you know you're grinding it out and you can't find your inside fastball and you're not you usually pitch inside, but outside you're just painting all day. Like just stick with it, you know, do whatever is working for you. And what I tell my guys, you know, especially my older guys is like, try to have a profound respect for your body and try to be in sync with it as much as possible. And also, you know, if you have that competitive gear, then like that should be in high gear all the time. You're always trying to maximize as much as you can but you also have to not have an ego about that gear. You have to, you have to try to just find a, a healthy balance. So. Let me ask you this. Who were some of your role models growing up? And like, what was your motivation to get into baseball? My pitching coach was definitely a role model of mine. His name is Tom Novak. He's actually the, uh, the pitching coach over at Mesa Community College in Arizona now. He's been there for a long time. There's a guy named Tony Sorelli who's been like, I want to say like 30 years at Mesa, Mesa Community College. Um, he was a real big positive influence on me. And then 
after I started in pro ball, I mean, my mom was definitely a huge influence. She, she just always supported me 100% and always had my back and, and I always wanted to do really well for her also. But um, after I started pro ball, I met a guy named Mac Newton who had a double hip replacement. He's the one that rehabbed Bo Jackson back from his hip replacement. Um, he's like super, super motivational guy. He had his first son when he was like 68 years old. So he's like just spitting asparagus bullets is what I always say. <laughs> like This is a super healthy guy, like made us like be on the program and like just pushed us really hard. I was working out with Matt Kemp when Matt Kemp was like in arbitration year that year. It was like his third season. He was a rising star. He was working out right next to me in Matt Newton's class. Junior Spivey, I don't know if you remember who that is, but he was, yeah. he was like still trying to stay in the game. He was working out with us too. Um, so that guy inspired inspired me like tremendously to keep moving and keep staying on my path. Um, Mark Burley, I love Mark Burley. He is, he was drafted by another one of my huge mentors, John Kazanis, who is a, uh, still to this day a uh, MLB scout for the Chicago White Sox. So he he's the one that told me to go to that tryout in Tucson. He's like, just go. If nothing happens, at least you can hang it up and know that you went to that tryout and then call it good after that. And so if I wouldn't have gone to that tryout, we probably wouldn't be sitting here right now. I wouldn't be, I, I probably would be, you know, doing something else than baseball. So thankfully he did that. And uh, those are, those are some of the big ones for sure. All my, I mean, my first year manager, Andy Haynes, he was awesome. Super encouraging. I think when you really like, know what you want and you know that you want to be there like and you have that clarity and there's no doubt in your mind like you naturally attract the right people into your life and you know if you're always open for it and those are always going to be coming for you so absolutely i couldn't agree more isaac thank you so much man i appreciate your time um I think it's really cool everything you got going on now uh, outside of baseball. Well, I guess it's still inside of baseball and softball. Uh, Cageless is not only for baseball players, for softball players as well. And not only for hitting. You know, you, we think of a cage as for hitting. But, you know, if you got a pitching mound too, you can rent that out as well, right? Uh, right. Where, can, uh, where can people follow you at? Of course, cageless.com. But where can they follow you out otherwise? We're on Instagram for Cage List, um, also just at Cage List. Uh, we're growing that page. And then something else that I was going to say, if I can plug this real fast, was yeah, uh, sure. we're, doing, we're doing virtual baseball classes um, for Made Baseball. So if you go to madebaseball.com, Made stands for Motivation, Appreciation, Dedication Every Day. It's kind of corny. We nice. say get, get made. You know, champions aren't born, they're made. So I like that. Yeah, for sure. So you gotta, you gotta, you can go on the website there if you're, if you're possibly interested. Most of our kids are anywhere from 10 to 15. Um, we've had good little, uh, 10 to 15 years old. We have some pretty good classes. Uh, we just talk baseball. Um, we do workouts during the classes as well. We do some baseball drills. It's been a blast. Those are uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 2:15 Pacific time. If anybody's interested, um, and, and yeah, just keep on the lookout. If if you're listening to this, I would, I would definitely encourage you to go sign up for cage list whether you're a user or especially if you're a cage owner um it's new and we're always going to be kind of geared towards helping out our new users as well having the support go both ways so um that's where you can find us sweet man I, when we get off this call i'm i'm getting on the phone with my buddy 
Chris Marler with the cage up there. I'm going to tell him about it because that's – I mean, I, he's the guy – he's like the perfect fit, I believe, for that. Any of you other guys listening who want some extra content and stuff like that uh, during this time we're stuck inside, Made Baseball sounds like the way to go. So check them out. Uh, you said it was madebaseball.com, right? Uh-huh. And, uh, again, Isaac, thank you so much for uh, coming on and giving us your time and telling us everything you got going on. We truly appreciate it, and I hope to talk to you soon. For sure. Thanks, John. Appreciate you, man. No problem. All right. Take care, bud.